Part Two, Chapter One of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lillis. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part Two, Chapter One. The Handicap. It was a sunny autumn afternoon. The leaves were rustling about my feet, and the first nip of winter was in the air. It was Saturday, and I was out for a stroll. Suddenly a crowd attracted my attention, and, impelled by that curiosity which such a concourse invariably excites, I drew near to see whether it meant a fire or a fight. It was neither. As I approached, I caught sight of young fellows moving in and out among the people, wearing light, many-colored garments, and I guessed that a race was about to be run. As soon as I arrived, the men were called up, arranged in a long line, and preparations made for the start. At a signal, two or three of them sprang out from the line and bounded with an easy stride along the road. A few seconds later, three or four more followed, then others, until at last only one was left, and after a brief period of further waiting, he also left the line and set out in pursuit. It was a handicap. It was a handicap, I was told, and this man had started from scratch. It was to be a long race, and it would be some time before any of the runners could be expected back again. The crowd, therefore, dispersed for the time being, breaking up into knots and groups, each of which strolled off to while away the waiting time as its own taste suggested. I turned into a lane that led up into the bush on the hillside, and, from that sheltered and sunny eminence, watched for the first sign of the returning runners. Sitting there with nothing to do, it flashed upon me that the scene I had just witnessed was a reflection, as in a mirror, of all human experience and endeavor. Most men are heavily handicapped. It is no good blinking the fact. Ask a man to undertake some office or assume some responsibility in connection with the church, and he will silence you at once with a narration of the difficulties that stand in his way. Ask a man to act on some board or committee for the management of some charitable or philanthropic enterprise, and he will explain to you that he has not a minute to spare. Ask a man to subscribe to some most necessary or deserving object, and he will tell you of the incessant demands to which he is subjected. Now it is no good putting all this down to can't. We have no right to assume that these are merely the lame excuses of men who, in their secret souls, do not desire to assist us. We must not hastily hurl at them the curse that fell upon Morose because it came not to the help of the Lord against the mighty. All that they say is perfectly true. The difficulties that debar the first of these men from undertaking the work to which you are calling him are both real and formidable. The second man has every moment of his time fully occupied. The third man, because he is known to be generous, is badgered to death with collecting lists from the first thing in the morning till the last thing at night. We must not judge these men too harshly. In the uncharitableness of our hearts, we imagine that they have given us excuses which are not reasons. The fact is, they have done exactly the reverse. They have given us reasons which are not excuses. We are on safer ground when we recognize, frankly, that it is very difficult for many men to devote much time, much energy, and much money to the kingdom of God. Many men are heavily handicapped. 2. Isn't that one of the runners just coming in sight now? A friend asked, pointing along the road. I fancied that he was right, so we rose and strolled down to the spot from which the race had started. We must have been mistaken, for when we emerged from the lane there was no sign of the competitors. I was not sorry, however, that we had returned prematurely, for I noticed the handicapper strolling idly about and got into conversation with him. There seems to me to be very little sense in a race of this kind, I suggested to him. If those men win who started first, the honor is very small in view of the start they received, whilst if the man who started last fails to win, he feels it to be no disgrace and comforts himself with the reflection that he was too heavily handicapped. Is that not so? Oh, no, replied the handicapper, politely concealing his pity for my simplicity. It works out just the other way. 
"'It isn't fair, don't you see, to keep those chaps that got away first "'always running in a class by themselves. "'It does not call out the best that is in them. "'But today it does them good to feel that they are being matched "'against some of the finest runners in the state, "'and they will strain every effort to try to beat the champions. "'And it does a man like Brown, who started from scratch, "'no harm to see those fellows all getting ahead of him at the start.' He knows very well that he can beat any man in the country on level terms, and in such races he will only put forth just as much effort as is needed to get ahead of his opponent. But there is nothing to show that he could not do much better still if only his opponent were more formidable. In a race like this, however, he knows that anything may happen. His usual rivals have all got a start of him. If he is to defend his good name, he must beat all his previous records and bring his utmost power into play. And so every man in the race is put on his mettle. We consider the handicap a very useful race indeed. Perhaps so, I said, feeling that I was beaten, but feebly attempting to recover my retreat. But how do you compute the exact starts and handicaps which the different men are to take? Ah, he said, now you've touched the vital question. I was gratified at his recognition of the good order of my retirement. You see, he went on, we have to look at the men's previous performances and work out the differences in their records with mathematical exactness. But there is something more than that. We have to know the men. You can't adjust the handicaps by rule of three. Anyone who has seen Jones run must have noticed that he's a bit downhearted. He's been beaten every time, and he goes into a race now expecting to be beaten, and is therefore beaten before he starts. He needs encouragement, and we have to consider that fact in arranging his handicap. Then there's Smith. He's too cocksure. He's never had any difficulty in beating men of his own class. He needs putting on his medal, so he increases handicap accordingly. It takes a lot of working out and a lot of thinking about, I tell you, but here they come. There was no mistake this time. A batch of runners came into sight all at once. The officials took their places and the crowd clustered excitedly round. As we waited, the remarks to which I had just listened took powerful hold upon my mind. The handicaps of life may have been more carefully calculated and more beneficially designed than we have sometimes been inclined to suppose. 3. It was a fine finish. As the first batch of men drew nearer, I was pleased to notice that Brown, the fellow in the light blue who had started last, was among them. Gradually he drew out from the rest and, with a magnificent spurt, asserted his superiority and won the race. A few minutes later I took the tram citywards. Just as it was starting, Brown also entered the car. I could not resist the opportunity of congratulating him. It must have taken the heart out of you, I said, to see all the other fellows getting in front of you and to find yourself left to the last. Oh no, he replied with a laugh. It's a bit of an honor, isn't it, to see that they think me so much better than everyone else that they fancy I have a sporting chance under such conditions. And besides, it spurs a fellow to do his best. When you're accustomed to winning races, it doesn't feel nice to be beaten, even in a handicap, and to avoid being beaten, you've got to go for all you're worth. I shook hands and left him, but I felt that he had given me something else to think about. It's a bit of an honor, he had said, and besides, it spurs a fellow to do his best. The next time a man tells me he cannot help me because he is so heavily handicapped, what a tale I shall have to tell him. 4. My Saturday afternoon experience has convinced me that, in the church, we have tragically misinterpreted the significance of handicaps. I am very heavily handicapped, we say in the church. Therefore, I must not attempt this thing. I am very heavily handicapped, they say out there at their sports. Therefore, I must put all my strength into it. And who can doubt that the philosophy of the churchman is false, or that the philosophy of the sportsman is sound? There is a great saying of Bacon's that every handicapped man should learn by heart. Whosoever, he says, quote, hath anything fixed in his person that doth induce contempt, hath also a perpetual spur in himself to rescue and deliver himself from scorn. End quote. 
Is that why so many of the world's greatest benefactors were men who bore in their bodies the marks of physical affliction, blindness, deafness, disease, and the like? They felt that they were heavily handicapped, and that their handicap called them to make a supreme effort to rescue and deliver themselves from scorn. When speaking of the difficulty which a black boy experiences in America in competing with his white rivals, Booker Washington tells us that his own pathetic and desperate struggle taught him that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles which he has overcome while trying to succeed. There is a good deal in that. I was once present at a meeting of a certain borough council at which an engineer had to report on a certain proposal which the municipal authorities were discussing. The engineer contented himself with remarking that there were serious difficulties in the way of executing the plan. Whereupon the mayor turned upon the unfortunate engineer and remarked, We pay you your salary, Mr. Engineer, not to tell us that difficulties exist, but to show us how to surmount them. I thought it a rather severe rebuke at the time, but very often since, when I have been tempted to allow my handicaps to divert me from my duty, I have been glad that I heard the poor engineer censured. I was once deeply and permanently impressed by a chairman's speech at a meeting in Exeter Hall. That noble old auditorium was crowded from floor to ceiling of the annual missionary demonstration of the Wesleyan Methodist Church. The chair was occupied by Mr. W. E. Knight of Newark. In the course of a most earnest plea for missionary enthusiasm, Mr. Knight suddenly became personal. I was born in a missionary atmosphere, he said. I have lived in it ever since. I hope I shall die in it. Over forty years ago, my heart was touched with the story of the world's needs, when I heard such men as Gervais Smith, Dr. Punchin, Richard Roberts, G.T. Perks, and others, I said, Lord, here I am, send me. I came up to London forty-one years ago as a candidate for the Methodist ministry. I offered myself, but the church did not see fit to accept my offer. I remember well coming up to the college at Westminster and being told of the decision of the committee by that sainted man, William Jackson. I went to the little room in which I had slept with a broken heart. I despised myself. I was rejected of men, and I felt I was forsaken of God. Now here is a man heavily handicapped, but let him finish his story. In that moment of darkness, Mr. Knight continued, the deepest darkness of my life, there came to me a voice which has influenced my life from then till now. It said, if you cannot go yourself, send someone else. I was a poor boy then. I knew that I could not pay for anyone else to go. But time rolled on, I prospered in business, and tonight I shall lay on the altar a sum which I wish the committee to invest, and the interest on that sum will support a missionary in Africa, not during my lifetime only, but as long as capital is capable of earning interest. And, ladies and gentlemen, I assure you that this is a red-letter day in my life. Of course it was. It was the day on which he had turned his handicap to that account for which all handicaps were intended. My handicap was an honor and a spur, said the champion in the tram car. My handicap was an honor and a spur, said the chairman at Exeter Hall. Both the champion and the chairman did by means of their handicaps what they could never have done without those handicaps. There can be no doubt about it. Handicaps were designed not as the pitiful excuses of the indolent, but as the magnificent inspirations of the brave. End of Part 2, Chapter 1